and welcome to Turtle Tracks Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Van Hooker, and I'm here today with Bob Bijan, the writer, co-composer, lyricist, and the voice of Michelangelo for the Ninja Turtles Coming Out of Their Shells Tour. Uh, I've been uh, looking forward to talking to you for a long time, so I really appreciate doing this. It's great to be here. Always fun to talk about the turtles. <laughs> so glad to hear that. You know, I, I, we're talking uh, a little while after the the new uh, NECA toys came out in honor of that, and it's, you know... 30, 29 years or 30 years after the concert. Yeah. And, uh, Crazy. <laughs> and, love it and have fond memories of it. So for sure. <laughs> so no, I mean, it was an amazing time. I mean, you know, I was, uh, it was, we, you know, I had been a performer and a working in the advertising business and my part, my writing partner and I, you know, we had experienced some success in the commercial world, but you know, nothing like what happened with uh, our relationship with the turtles. I mean, it was an incredible ride, and so early in our career, it was really a lot of fun. You know, tell me a little bit. What was your what 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 was your career before turtles? Where where were you? What 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 happened before then? Yeah, so I mean, I I uh, you know I went to college as a as a theater arts major as an athlete, you know, um, but I wanted to be a performer, you know, at least, or th- you know that's what I thought I wanted to get in the, the musical theater. And so when I graduated from college, I was very lucky. I got into the uh, performing unions uh, right out of school and started doing musical theater and moved to New York and was a musical theater performer, singer, dancer um, for the kind of the first four and a half years of my career. And, and then uh, during that time, um, wrote a musical uh, that got produced in New York City uh, that was very much in a traditional Broadway kind of style. Um, and instead of it going straight to Broadway, it got it kind of catapulted my writing partner and our my careers in the commercial world. And so, um, you know, kind of in the early and mid mid 80s, we started working for pretty much every major advertising agency in New York and Chicago, doing jingles, original music, industrial shows, you know, these things that were very popular back in the 80s. And um, and we were very lucky. We had great teachers and people that took us under their wing. And, um, you know, we were we made enough money that we built a studio of our own in New York. And we kind of made this pinky swear pact with each other that said, hey, once we get that studio built in the city, you know, we would go back to doing straight entertainment projects or at least start to undertake them. And um, so about 1988, uh, I had been given one of the first kind of Xerox copies of the first comic novel of uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And all of our friends were like having kids and talking about going to like Sesame Street on ice and how terrible it was and this kind of thing. And, and my partner and I kind of went, wow, man, like this would be a great kids show where, you know, you, you could make it cool for kids, but t- parents would like it too, maybe, you know, we could write, write it in a way. And, um, and then that's what led to it. And, and uh, we wrote some songs. I wrote a treatment for the show, what the show could be like. And then that's kind of what got us introduced to Eastman and Laird. We literally just called them on the phone uh, and said, hey, you know, we've been reading your comic book and we have an idea for a show we'd like to do. And we drove up to Northampton, Massachusetts and hung out with them and played through the songs and they liked what they heard. And that was how it got started. What was the, um, I mean, was there any knowledge of the cartoon at that point? Cause it had just started then. That's correct. So the cartoon wasn't out yet. The movie hadn't oh, wow. come out yet. Right. So, you know, it was all kind of pre and we kind of, we got, we fell in love with the turtles just on the merits of the comic novel that the copy we had was not even a printed copy. It was a Xerox copy of kind of their galleys. Oh, and, wow. um, and then what happened was we got involved with them. And they kind of brought us in and licensed us the rights to, to do all that we were doing, you know, the live show, the music associated with it, all the merchandising and all of that amazing package of rights to be able to create with. 
Um, and then after we closed is when all the, when the movie broke and then did a couple hundred million dollars and this, you know, the series started and it just completely exploded. So, you know, we were kind of there at the beginning and just got strapped to the rocket and just kind of rode it. It's so weird. Like all this stuff seemed to occur at like the same time, like from 87 to 90, 91, like everything happened at totally. the moment. And it's just, I guess, it could, and it's weird that it all seems to start like independent of each other. I was so surprised. I talked to the movie guys a few weeks ago and like that all started separate. And it's all like, it's amazing to me that they all kind of happened at the exact moment, which is, I guess, what catapulted turtles to be what it was. It's really a tribute to a, to a small set of people. And it, at the core of it, it's Mark and Renee Friedman, you know, the guys that, you know, the couple that started Mirage licensing. That, the fact that all that stuff happened at the same time is really a tribute to their business savvy. You know, the two of them, they were, re, they're very, very smart people. And, you know, they, they left their whole careers. They, you know, they both had great kind of careers in the toy business and the licensing business. And they were so in love with the turtles idea that like they dropped, they, they quit their jobs and started surge licensing because they just thought the property was so great. And there was something magical around it all, you know, yeah. and their lawyer, this guy by the name of Mickey Hyman, um, also really understood a long time um, music industry lawyer, but then a, a entertainment lawyer. Um, but that those three really had a sense of like what could happen. And then were really smart about the way they put the licensing deals together, the movie team, the TV team, the toys team, us, it was, you know, it was very well orchestrated by them. Let me ask you, do you remember anything about your meeting with uh, Eastman and Laird, how, what that was like? Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, you know, they had a great place up in Northampton, Mass. And so not that far outside the city, we drove up there to hang out with them. And, you know, things were already starting to happen. Um, and they were super interesting people. Um, and, you know, we just had a great night. You know, we went to uh, the Packard, which is a, a diner, kind of beer joint, burger place by their studio. We went there for dinner, kind of went back, played through the songs and everything. And it was just like this very, you know, kind of very, the chemistry was really good. And I think they thought we were not, you know, maybe we were obviously young and, and we had a lot of enthusiasm. And I think we vibed with them. I think the music we had written kind of captured the spirit. And, you know, it's one of those things where when the chemistry works, you know, kind of things work out. And, um, and that's what really, that's what, you know, it all stemmed from there. Because they said, oh, you'll get a call from our lawyer in a couple of weeks kind of thing. And sure enough, like two weeks later, there was this call and an offer for the package of rights that we were hoping that we would get. Now, I, I also read, uh, so I, uh, before uh, talking to you, I, I found an article online by a guy named uh, Chris Hainer at GameSpot. So a lot of my work, I'll, I'll attribute to him because it's a great piece. I encourage anybody who, uh, who wants a deeper dive into, <laughs> into yeah. the no, That's the whole story, man. <laughs> great yeah, it's great. It really is. Um, but from what I understand is that you ended up um, getting, uh, seeing like, getting more sponsors than you'd planned on and making it a much bigger show. What would it have looked like originally, out of curiosity? Well, we, it was always like a Broadway-level show, right? I mean, we okay. knew it was going to be a big deal, and we, we wanted it to be as – we knew we had to be as realistic-looking as we could be, and the definition of realistic is that they look like the live action in the film, right? So these heavily latex suits that we did uh, in partnership with Landmark Entertainment out in Hollywood, a great theme park design company – um, and they helped us build the suits and the audio and electronics. And so once we started understanding that basically we're going to have to build, you know, Disney ride level audio animatronic heads and these suits for the show, 
and what we would need to do to create this kind of rock concert conceit and everything happening. Um, you know, we knew it was going to be a multi-million dollar show even then, like back in 1989. But the heat around the turtles and, and what they like to eat kind of made it easy for us to go, oh, here's how the whole ad thing would work. And that's where it really helped that my partner and I had just come out of like three and a half years of intensely working in the ad business of like knowing what works and kind of how to build camp campaigns. So we, we were like, oh, my God, this is built for to be sponsored by a pizza company. Sure, and then, you know, when we got the rights and everything and the film did so well and all of that buzz was happening, you know, it was pretty easy to just reach out to Pizza Hut, Domino's and Little Caesars and go, hey, can we come and see you? We think we have something that you'd be interested in. And all three of them were uh, Pizza Hut was and David Novak, the guy that was running uh, marketing at Pizza Hut at the time. Um, you know, they they understood better than anyone. And they were the ones that really went, OK, we they saw the big picture and saw how they could make it work. And, and, you know, the way they enabled it is, is they bought 3 million records up front, which the purchase of those 3 million records that they would give away as a premium to kids when they bought a pizza, that money paid for the financing of the tour. And then they also committed for their promotion and the launch of the tour at Radio City Music Hall. They did what at the time was a huge advertising buy of $25 million and ran that commercial nationally, which just launched the tour in a way that, you know, we never could have done. Um, and it was just, you know, it was just an amazing mix of just like the right idea with the right partners and the right kind of creative treatment. And it really, it really worked. I think I heard once, and I don't know if this is true, but that um, Pizza Hut was not interested in doing the movie of the Turtles. Right. Uh, they didn't want to have any part of it. That's why there's Domino's in the movie, but originally they wanted Pizza Hut. Uh, but they were, I guess, once the, 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 they saw how much money was in it, the, the Broadway show was cool. Yeah, and I think, and and look, I think the, the hookiness of it, right? Because we had, you know, the nature of a live touring show, you know, there's advance. You come in in advance, we'd have two advanced turtles. They'd go to the Pizza Hut stores in the city. So we'd come to your town and, you know, the week before we would run stories because our whole thing was we never admitted that the turtles weren't real. Right. So even like my writing partner and I would always talk about, yeah, we were in the studio with them last night, but we would never give it away. And yeah. so the whole, our whole press strategy was, you know, the turtles were there for load in and rehearsal and sound check three or four days before the show. And they'd come to a pizza hut to get lunch. And then that would be, you know, that's, we do personal appearances and then that would work great, you know, in terms of generating excitement in the town and selling tickets. And then sure. like that, the whole thing worked together. And I think that's what Pizza Hut saw because they got these, you know, they got a great kind of promotion to move pizzas. They got the kind of in-store activation and they'd get all these, all this press when we would come to town and the show would be on for a week. Um, you know, it just really worked very, very well for them and certainly for us. Oh, that's true too. Cause they're also appearing there in person. I didn't know that, you know, I, I've read, and I don't know if this is true. I'd read that, um, Michael Ian Black and yeah. uh, Ben Garrett were <laughs> those. The, they were the advanced turtles. That's so those amazing. Guys, that's what's amazing. Like those guys were, they would just come to New York and, um, and they, and when I met them and my partner and I met them actually doing commercial stuff. And then it was like, Oh my God, you guys would be great. And then we hired them. And then they, they drove around in a van for almost two years <clears throat> wow. going, to, going to cities and they would put the suits on and be there, the, you know, and do the stuff at the, you know, at the restaurants and everything. And it's, you know, it's with great pride that I look back at that and go, both of those guys have done pretty darn well. 
Yeah, for sure. That's so cool. That because I, I read that, I was like, that can't. Is that really true? That's amazing. <laughs> no, and here's the other thing that's pretty funny is that both of them sublet my apartment. Like, I still have an apartment in New York, this tenement apartment that is in the middle of Hell's Kitchen in Midtown on the West Side, and both of those guys, and then one other guy from that comedy troupe that they were all in, Joe Latruglio, who you may know from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Yeah, for sure. They've, I've only I've only sublet that apartment to three people, and all three of them is of those three. So it's like we we share this lucky apartment because that apartment is where we wrote the treatment for the turtles because that was our recording studio back in 1988 and 89. It's now been restored to an apartment, and those guys live there afterwards. But it's just it's very funny that that place awesome. and those people we you know we all done okay. That's very cool. That's great. Yeah. So um the uh just so people can kind of like understand it, how is this put together? Like I, I know much of it was pre-recorded, right? So like how did it work? Yeah, no, no. So it's like it's wild because it, it you know, at least for my career, it had a direct link on why I'm in, you know, kind of in the technology business now. So what happened was is, you know, we like I said earlier, we it was important for us to make them as much like the movie turtles as possible. And those were these great, you know, great latex costumes and everything. But the trick was the idea of these audio animatronic heads, you know, like Pirates of the Caribbean or any of these kind of animated uh, puppets that you see now. But back then in 1988 and 89, as we were bringing the show to to the, you know, to the market, there were no show control software that would control remotely the Futaba kind of solenoids, because what you use, we use is like uh, Futaba remote controls the same way you control an RT car or mm-hmm. a, an RC plane. And then, you know, the solenoids would be in the heads and then controlled remotely through those things. And so you'd have those, um, those FM controllers, but there was no way to link those controllers to the 32 track recording that we did, uh, that we would mix live every night. So it would feel like a live concert. So we recorded everything at the hit factory in New York and a place called Conway Studios in LA. And then we left it as a 32 track separated mix so that we could kind of in every venue mix the thing. So it would really feel like a live performance, right? All the instruments separate, all the dialogue separate, but all all of the dialogue of the turtles had to be pre-recorded as well, which made it pretty interesting, you know, in terms of when we wrote the show and went into rehearsal, you know, you'd make all these assumptions of what the gaps should be, or if you thought something was going to be funny, estimating how big a laugh it would get in the theater. But then we ended up doing like, you know, a month of out of town tryouts in various theaters in the Northeast. And we would like do the show for a week. And I'd take notes about like where we had too much pause or where we had, you know, too little. And then we'd go back to the hit factory on, you know, Sunday night and Monday when the theaters would be dark and go back into the studio and do all the edits to try and get the timing right. And that was a pretty interesting challenge. And then the other thing that was really challenging is, is, as I said earlier, nothing to connect the digital multi-track to the, uh, you know, syncing of the heads themselves. And so we literally had to write our own software package that connected through, you know, MIDI, the the 32 track Mitsubishi multiplayer, and all of these uh, FM controllers to control the heads at the back of the theater. And that was really the first software development I ever did with a team. And uh, that's where they started to get me into kind of technology. And that kind of led to a whole bunch of other things and ended up getting me to Microsoft where I am now. But um, that, it, was a, it was a wild show because 
we used a lot of people from the Broadway scene, you know, Jules Fisher, who's a famous lighting designer and producer in the Broadway stage, did the lighting design. Um, the scenic designer is the scenic designer for the Saturday Night Live. You know, so we had all these people from the traditional theater world. But we were doing this rock concert kind of thing that had all this technology in it um, that really made for some pretty interesting <laughs> challenges. Plus, you know, the, the suits themselves, while they were well suited for movie making, where you're just doing short takes at a time, we had a lot of trouble with those latex suits at the beginning because they were terribly hot and it was very difficult for the performers to kind of, you know, keep energetic and dancing. And so we had to do a lot of adjustments once we started to work with them to get to a place where we could tour the thing and keep people alive, you know. Not Is hurting. that why there seems to be two different different versions of the suits? Because the behind the scenes seemed to be a different, there were totally. different. So what happened is, is, you know, the, the, in the behind the scenes, they're fully decked out and they look, they kind of look exactly like the movie turtles. But yeah. then what happened is, is in our first out of town tryout in, um, in uh, Providence, uh, Rhode Island, um, we had a thing called shell night. It was like the first paid rehearsal or paid uh, preview. And the, uh, all the actors are in the costumes with the shells and they were so hot under the lights that by halfway through the first act, two of the turtles had passed out cold on the stage. And so that was like a big, like, oh my God, this is not going to work. And that's where we lost the shells and went to the, you know, jean jackets that were all embroidered and bedazzled and everything like that. And that gave them enough kind of air on their back and, you know, air moving through the suits that they could dance at the level they needed to, to have the energy and do the fighting and all that kind of stuff, but still be able to move around on the stage and not be, you know, kind of, heat exhaustion every night. Pretty did they scary. dance out in front of a crowd? Yeah, they did. It was not pretty. Oh <laughs> it was not pretty. No, it was not pretty. That's what we call shell night, you know, but it was all, it was bad, but not nearly as bad as opening night at Radio City because, you know, we had these, if you've, you've seen the tapes or anything, you know, we had these toasters coming out of the stage, you know, the manhole covers would blow off and the turtles would jump up and kind of do this whole thing. So it's first preview at Radio City Music Hall, not, not opening night, but like two nights before the fire marshals are in because we had a lot of pyro and everything. And um, the manhole covers blow off, but the pyro goes off as well a little bit too early and lights one of the manhole covers on fire and it's flying up to the ceiling and literally catches this, you know, multi-million dollar, you know, uh, heavy drape curtain that's hanging at the front of Radio City Music Hall. And I'm sitting next to in the back, the fire marshal on one side and the guy that is basically the general manager, president of Radio City Music Hall Entertainment. And they both like are flipping out and I'm like going, oh my God, this is the end of our lives. You know, the roof, we're going to ruin, we're going to burn down Radio City Music Hall. So we had some interesting- uh, That's amazing. Challenges. <laughs> And the heads, like they're different heads too. Like those were the, like, I'm guessing like from the, like I, I, I was the, um, was the behind the scenes done before the tour? It was done. It, it was done in the eight weeks that we were rehearsing and getting ready. So cool, cool, cool. We, yeah, we had all that stuff. Yeah. But you're right. It's you're, you notice it totally. Like when they're down in the sewers, those suits were like, they looked beautiful. And then they got, they got much more streamlined as we started to realize what we needed to do. Sure. To let these performers do eight shows a week. Oh yeah, I mean, like you, I, I've talked to a couple of the people uh, uh, who were in the suits for the movie, and like, I can't imagine having to dance on a stage. And like, you know, you can hide the mistakes in a yeah. movie. That's right. You know, you have a turtle pass out in front of uh, a million kids. That's <laughs> not, not good. good. No, it's not good. 
<laughs> not good to be responsible for killing turtles. No, no. Right. <laughs> good Lord. Um, so the, uh, do you remember, do you have any particular memories from the making of the, uh, that video? Cause that's like that Oprah and the, the, the three, those are the three things that are notoriously put together. So, yeah. I mean, look, all of it was incredibly fun. I have to tell you, like, it was just, you know, it was just an incredible gas, you know, I mean, the, to be a part of something that is just so popular and so much a part of kind of the gestalt of the time. Sure. Here's a, here's a great, like just a, an indication of it. Like we're making that, um, the making of, and it, it was between New York. We're working at the hit factory, right. Which is, you know, where every great artist was doing their records in the seventies in New York. And then Conway studios in Hollywood is also equally famous in terms of the people that were working there at the time. And, um, you know, Billy Heidel is working in the studio next door to us in LA. Bruce Springsteen was mixing an album in the studio next to us in New York, you know, and they're coming in to talk to us about the turtles. You know, it's crazy. You know, it's just very funny. And then, um, you know, and we're, and, and this whole thing that we were talking about earlier that we never broke, that we were totally like our whole angle on it was like that this, they, these guys are for real and, mm -hmm. and we were lucky enough to be working with them. So yeah. that made it totally fun because, you know, the crews that were shooting on the, the documentary and everything, you know, they like they couldn't believe it because, it, you know, just that kind of stuff wasn't those kind of stunty things were just starting to become kind of what it is now. You know, these what now is called integrated marketing or these kind of cross media campaigns that are now so t talked about and executed constantly where everything is integrated across all these channels. There just wasn't that much of that then, you know, back in 1988, 89, 90. And so, you know, the thought of like getting, being able to pull off a creative idea like that and go, and people like not saying no to us, you know, was incredible. <laughs> a lot of fun. Sure. And you were, so you, uh, you, you were Michelangelo, the voice of Michelangelo. Yeah. Uh, the stage, so the pre-recorded voice of Mikey, right? Correct. And what made you, uh, like, how come, how come you ended up as Mikey? Well, I mean, it's a combination of things. I sang all the I sang all the stuff on the demos, right? Because we had just done them, you know, kind of put them together there. And then we were looking for, you know, voices. And we talked to the guy that was cast for the cartoon and whether he wanted to be, couldn't sing. And uh -huh. and so when we were when we started the recording, when we started to take the demos into the recording studio and build the multi-tracks, you know, mostly what happens when you're putting tracks together like that is you put some kind of guide vocal down so that when you bring in session players to do their solos or that kind of stuff, they know where the lyrics go and that kind of thing. So I sang the parts at the beginning while we were still looking for a voice. And then we were starting to play them for the executives at, at Pizza Hut and then MCA records were the distributors of the record. So, you know, we started to play them for the music folks at MCA and everybody's like, well, this is, you know, they were liking it. And, and what was strange is I wasn't telling anybody that it was me because I didn't want people to think I was trying to make it, you know, anything. And we were recording at night and doing the business stuff during the day. And so people were responding to the voice and people are going, that's a great voice. Who is that? You know, can we do a buyout with him? You know, and, and, I, and so I finally had to come clean and then say that it was me. And then it was like, okay, well, that's fine. And that's, so I kind of backed into it, not on purpose. <laughs> um, but then of course it was incredibly fun to be able to do. Oh, for sure. And you got to be like, like Mikey, I watched it all recently. Um, I watched it with, uh, with my daughter and, um, Mikey owns the show. Like it's very much, he's the leader in that, yeah. in that 90 minutes for sure. Yeah. No, no. He's driving the rock and roll stuff. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> Like that's just within character too, of course. Yeah. And if, if, correct me if I'm wrong. And it, it doesn't list it in the credits, at least not that I saw. 
it sounded like Leonardo was Cam Clark from the cartoon. And that's correct. Yeah, was, it was there also Peter Renaday from the cartoon? Correct. Okay, cool. Now everybody else, who did the other ones? So then, uh, then, then um, uh, uh, Tom White, the director, okay. um, did the Donatello uh, role. Yeah, Leo role. Leo, uh, Donatello, and then I and then I did Mike. Oh, cool. And, okay. then, and then and then this and then the Splinter was the original Splinter. Yeah, and, he, the singing voice sounds different than the the. No, talk. the singing voice is my writing partner, Godfrey Nelson, is the singer. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, but like I, I was just like I think that's them. So that I and who like who was in the, who was in the suits on the stage? So I can get you the list. Yeah, I can get I can get you the list of them. Um, <laughs> but you know, the all equity actors and all people that you're seeing now, you know, kind of working today. So it's it's wild how how well everybody's done out of that cast. I'm just glad. I'm, they I'm happy to say I'll send you the cast list. Sure, I'm just glad they survived the tour. That's yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Totally. When you were writing it, what was, I'm curious, what, do you remember what the first song was that you wrote that came out? Yeah. Oh yeah. Pizza power was the first one we did. Oh, great. Yeah. That's the best one. Yeah. So pizza power count on us and, um, and skipping stones was, were kind of the first three and then, um, and then, you know, kind of tube and, and then the rest of them kind of came as uh, once we started to get going. I mean, the, the, the whole show, you know, in the scheme of things and now, you know, a lifetime of being creative and making stuff, you know, later, it came out remarkably easily. You know, I mean, it's one of those things where you could see it right away and the plot fell together for us right away. And, and the, and the songs came pretty easy, all of them. I am especially fond of pizza power. I, you're, I'm broadcasting from my decked out turtle basement and uh, off to the side, there's like the original turtles in time arcade machine. So every time I flick that machine on pizza power pops up. There you go. So like that one I am especially fond of. And I, so that's very cool. Yeah. So uh, is that also your favorite of the songs? You know, I, I like, I personally like Tubin, my favorite, okay. because, you know, I kind of grew up at the beach in Southern California. And so like that song is so harkens back to the beach. And if you listen to it carefully, actually, there is a, I was a Huntington Beach lifeguard uh, all through college and, um, there's an announcement that gets made at the Huntington Beach Pier constantly because there's a side current that pulls through the pier. And so at the end of Tubin, there's actually, we up on, outside, we put up a big loudspeaker outside the Conway Studios in LA and did all those lifeguard announcements. And if you listen carefully at the end, you can hear them in the background, but pretty funny. Oh, very cool. Do you have any of those songs that like haunt you that you could never hear again and that'd be okay? Yeah, I, I could live my whole life and not hear Walk Straight again. I, know, I can't believe I kind of said that so quickly, but it's true. <laughs> but I, mean, I think that happens a lot with people that create stuff, right? I mean, oh, for sure. You hear yeah. stuff and you kind of go, I, you work on it so hard. You listen to it so many times when you're making it. Yeah. And you kind of get done and go, okay, I don't care if I hear that again. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I I'm, I'm more than understand. Um, so, you know, we, you can kind of access, I never went to the show as a kid. I, I wish I had. Uh, but, you know, my experience with it was the, uh, the VHS tapes. Um, how, how much did the tour after Radio City, like, was it like plug and play? Was the show the same every time? Well, pretty much because, you know, it's all, it was recorded end to end, right? So, you know, the live actors, you know, Shredder and April, you know, said their lines live against the track. But, you know, I mean, that show is pretty set, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, you hit play. The things that were variable, though, 
were, you know, the mix in the rooms. Like I say, you know, it was a kind of a cool show to mix because we mixed that 32 tracks live every day. The other thing that we did that I think was interesting, and again, at the time, was a little bit more forward, you know, blurring the wall between reality and the show. You know, we had a full television video mag crew. The way you'd think about a rock concert now, the way you do video magnification, and there's always, you know, they're making TV for those screens. And we had that. But then we also played the reality of April O'Neil. So like, you know, when House opened and we start to take tickets, April and her news crew would be in the lobby interviewing kids. And then we'd cut that video footage together right away and then make that part of the pre-show. So like right from the very beginning, there was this blurring of the line between what's real and like, wow, that's weird. She really is a news person. And look, there I am. I just talked to her in the lobby and there's my face on the TV. And like all that stuff was very cool in terms of getting kids involved and the family's kind of almost interactive. And so that kind of performance art kind of feel, I mean, that's a kind of a snooty thing to say about a kid's show, but that was what we were thinking about was kind of trying to do that and create this experience that of course would be, you know, great for kids to suspend their disbelief, but also be something that the parents would kind of go, Oh, that's clever. I can, I can enjoy this, even though it's very much a kid's show. Sure. Oh, very cool. And I'm curious, like, how do you, um, like if the show runs off track or longer, like how do you get on track with those? Like, how does that work? Well, you know, the thing is, is, you know, that half hour loading in once, once the house lights go down and the show starts, at least for the first act, there was an intermission, right? It, there, it, so, so for each act, once you hit play, I mean, you're on, that's it. And so if something goes wrong and things, occasionally things will go wrong with the set, you know, like any live show, then you're in a situation where either you're going to be really clever as the live actors interacting with the turtles and the stuff that's on tape or the guys, the men and women that were playing the turtles, you know, kind of moving the action forward to keep up with the tape because it's not going anywhere. And I don't, I, I can't think of a single performance where we hit stop and kind of like tried to figure it out and then kind of resume the show. Sure. It was always that the performers had to keep up with the track. Sure. I'm guessing too, they were prepared like, they knew that that's part of the gig is like get stuff back on track. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, any memories from being on Oprah? Man, that was awesome. You know, because that, that, you know, we spent a whole week with them out at um, uh, Harpo. So it's amazing. like, I, I remember reading that in that article of the, like, you're like, I can't believe we convinced her to do a whole hour. And like that, what I'm real watching, I watched it a couple days ago and I'm like, that's the, my only thought is, how the hell do they convince Oprah to do this for an entire second of the show? It's amazing. No. And you know, and because she was huge then, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like she was, she was huge then. And, that, and to this day, that's the only show she ever did with kids. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. Pretty interesting. Huge compliment or huge insult. It depends on how you take it. <laughs> I think it, I take it as a compliment. Of I, course. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, and I read this, but I wasn't sure if this was, I couldn't find a video or anything of it, but was, uh, did you guys, did the Turtles sing the national anthem at Yankee Stadium? Yeah. So uh, we did, we, the, maybe the week before we opened at Radio City Music Hall, which must've been like the very, either the next to last game of the season or the last game of the season, um, we at Yankee Stadium, we sang the national anthem and I sang it live in, at a microphone in the dugout, in the Yankee dugout. And then the actor that played Mikey was on the mound singing. 
And I had the Futaba controlling his head, singing Don Mattingly, <laughs> who was a player at the time, standing next to me. Derek Jeter standing on the other side. Oh wow! You know, and there and everybody in the dugout just like howling, laughing that we're even doing it. Do you know what I mean? And that was pretty freaking cool, man. Like that's real. That's nuts. Now, how long did the show last? Like, when did it go into? Like, when did it start and finish? I don't really know. Two and a half years. We ran for two and a half years, and we had four companies around the world. So we had a North American company that toured in English. We had a Latin American company that toured South America in Spanish. Um, we had a European company that um, did the show in English, but toured, you know, all over France and Germany and, and Western Europe. Um, and then we had a, a, a company that went to Asia as well. Um, and, and I had no idea. Show. I think it was like a year or less than that. Wow. Yeah, no, crazy. Like it was just, it, it was an amazing, amazing time. Good Lord. And it was the same there was there a, I read something. There was a follow up tour. Yeah, we did a follow up like two years later that we did a tour with um, um, uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain, and okay. we, we did a summer tour of a second show, a sequel kind of show uh, that we did in Six Flags uh, in the United States that toured two summers. Oh wow! Was it different songs and everything? Yeah, all new songs. And kind of, a, you know, not not nearly as much of a plot, more just like the Turtles kind of coming out and doing, a, you know, kind of their second album kind of tour. So not really any big um, drama in it. Um, but it was a nice way to get, you know, about 10 more songs out. Oh, that's cool. What yeah. was it? Get, it was called the Getting Down in Your Town tour. Very cool. I have to find that. I, I've not found that. So that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, wait, was there ever a... I'm curious, do you have any favorite piece of like merchandise from the show? Like that was, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I we did these, you know, we, we really tried to do everything like the way a rock and roll tour would do it. So it seemed very real. And the souvenir book we did for the turtles tour, which was a big oversized tour book, you know, it was beautiful. You know, the artwork in it and the photo, the photography in it and everything. I, I think that's still my favorite. That's my favorite thing. Oh, Although very. I will say we had bandanas, you know, we had tour bandanas done in all the colors. And I, I'll tell you that for about a two year period, I would carry a set of all four colored bandanas in my briefcase. And then maybe a dozen, you know, pictures of the turtles um, that I, that could be autographed. And for literally two years, I never bought more than a coach ticket on a plane and you got to remember before 9-11, right? You could still, you, you just walk up to the ticket counter, look for somebody that looked like a parent that would have a kid and then kind of check in and go, hey, do you have kids or anything? Are they into the turtles? And always invariably people go, oh, yes, they are. You go, hey, what, what, do you know what turtle they like? And they go, Michael, oh, well, here's a bandana. Maybe like that. You autograph picture, boom, I'd get upgraded every time. Like, I'm just like, you know, just like, boom, upgrade. You know, I mean, first class flying for a picture. It was amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Different time. Good lord. Now, do you have any? Uh, do you have any artifacts of the show still in your possession? Any Shredder's helmet or turtle heads or anything? Yeah, I have this though. This was made for me by the suit people. That's what I used to look like. Oh wow! That's awesome. That's a Bob Bajan creative turtle. Your head popped into a turtle body. That is amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. So I have that, and then I this I put this up because I knew we were talking. This was 
this is um, the, the street sign from New York because for the two weeks that we played Radio City Music Hall, the corner of 6th Avenue and 54th Street was turned into Cowabunga Corner. Oh, that's awesome. So this is what hung on the street for that oh, month. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that is, it looks like it's just a legit street sign. That's so great. Yeah. And you have to clear, I mean, I'm guessing you had to clear that with the city and everything. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, no, no. We got a proclamation because, you know, the walk straight thing ended up getting picked up. So, so like, you know, we did, we did a whole bunch of, we would do these appearances at schools and do this whole Anna drug thing, you know, with, uh, you know, dare, dare to say no to drugs and all of that kind of thing. And so, you know, the mayor of New York at that time did a big thing with us in front of Radio City Music Hall. And in fact, the big press stunt was we put the turtles up on the roof of the marquee of Radio City closed sixth avenue when the tickets went on sale and they did a lunchtime concert they played three songs and then that's when the mayor kind of proclaimed that we were doing good helping kids stay off drugs and then they named it calabunga corner for the whole time we were at radio city that's a cool artifact that's (laughs) That's really cool that's really cool that's great (laughs) um one thing i was i wanted to pay a little respect to that that piece of artwork too that the uh michelangelo and the, the the guitar I, I, that's still one of my favorite pieces of turtle art. I'm, I'm getting an artist to redesign the logo for this little podcast and I'm modeling it after that. So like, I'm in love with that piece of artwork. It's great. That's cool. Well, I have to say to this day, you know, it's my favorite tour jacket. You know, this is a big thing. Tours, you know, always make these kind of letterman's jackets of, you know, the tours that you're on. And, you know, when you're a performer in, you know, Broadway type musicals, those jackets are always very valuable and great keepsakes. Um, but the coming out of your shells tour jacket is so, you know, it's a leather jacket with that logo on the back. It's awesome. I That's still right. have it. <laughs> you have any idea who did that artwork? I'm just, I'm, I, I, I can't, I mean, it's, I'm sure. It might I can't be. remember. And it, and it was like a staffer at, um, J Walter Thompson, who was, uh, Pizza Hut's ad agency. Oh, wow. So it was a, it was, a, it was one of the art directors working at J Walter Thompson at the time. It's such a great, like singularly iconic. Anyway, like I remember, like yours were the only turtles ever without shells. And like the, I, I remember you re- reading in the article, you were saying how like the jackets ended up really helping it because it made it this sort of like, these are the concert turtles and that's singularly identified with them. Which exactly is right. Because like that, like the, the, those ripped jean jackets are amazing. Like that's, immediately says the tour to me it's great yeah i have the michelangelo one which is like i love yeah it's hanging in my closet it's like they were so awesome you know and they're all just beautifully these beautifully hand done things you know and um and i think that and i remember you know we would do all these interviews and i did all the michelangelo interviews of course because i was the voice and um you know i remember people you know people all over the country radio disc jockeys and stuff like that asking about like hey you know am i what's the story without the shells you know and we we're always like hey you know we got to take the shells off to rock you know you need that because you know <laughs> i can't get a strap to fit over my shell and you know kind of do it all right. just very like of course we had to do that we you know we had to get, we had to put the show on so we got to, the shell had to come off <laughs> <laughs> oh you know it's so funny yeah, and also like the name would come to be that too which is hysterical so that wasn't related, right? The name must have come before. No, we, we, we had made that name before, but it was like, oh okay. my God, what a lucky break. You know, like it, it makes sure. sense now. <laughs> I was just saying, it didn't take two people passing out on stage to come up with the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gone better. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious uh, about your, I mean, what you think about the legacy of this thing? Because I mean, it's, it's, 
just a, a week ago, toys came out of it from NECA. I'm curious, like, are you, were you surprised the first time you saw those? Totally. I mean, and, and the fact that they completely like really, they took the show as the, I mean, the instruments are all the right shape and everything. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's like, it's amazing to see it, you know, I mean, and just to play some small part in that and be a part of this thing that continues to survive. And not only that, but almost this kind of a return, it feels like there's almost a resurgence maybe is too much of a word, but it feels like there's kind of this, you know, kind of a, a growing love for them again uh, with a whole new audience. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's very cool. I mean, I would love for anything to happen. Because like I said, I missed out when I was... <laughs> I'm not too old to go... I have a kid, so I have a cover, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course. How old's your kid? Uh, five. Oh, perfect. That's a great age. Yeah. yeah. So, although I would I would go by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so that's... <laughs> Uh, my last question for you, and this is really it. And I mean, I probably have the answer already, but uh, do you have a favorite turtle? You know, I mean, I certainly have a place. The Michelangelo has a place in my heart just because, sure. you know, I feel like, you know, he's part of me in a way and, and just had such a great time, you know, being able to interpret him. Um, but I have to say, I look at them as a group and just go the whole thing. I, there's just a lot of love. You know, I mean, I just it's, it was an incredible gift to be given so early in my career to be able to be a part of something like that. And I learned so much and so much of, you know, kind of what I learned from them, you know, I'm still applying today in the way I work and, you know, kind of the stuff that we're doing even here at Microsoft. And so um, great, nothing but affection, <laughs> nothing but love, awesome. man. <laughs> you know, Bob, this was, this is so great. Thank you so much for your time and for, you know, just keep in touch with the fans and everything. This is just, it's a pleasure to talk to you so much. Thank you. It's a thrill, man, and stay in touch and uh, turtle power. <laughs> and you've been turtle power, like. Right?